I invite you to turn to Psalm 130. Well, Psalm 130, I'll be reading verses 5 to 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Father, we ask now that as we turn to your word, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as we began this psalm last week, we discovered that the psalmist is in the depths. Out of the depths I cry to you, we're told in verse 1, the image is one of being caught in dangerous and deep waters. The crashing waves of sin are engulfing him. He's drowning in the deep water of despair, overwhelmed by the rising tides of anguish brought about by his sin. And so what does he do? He cries out to God. And so that is the psalmist's condition, and we move from his condition into the depths he is to hearing his cry. Look at verse 2, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. This is an emotional word. It's an emotional cry, crying out to God for mercy. He's plumbed the depths of his soul, and and he found in his soul this deep-rooted sin, And he has no other appeal. He knows who God is. He knows that God is sovereign. He knows that God is holy. He knows that God is righteous. And there's nothing he can say at this point. All he can do is cry out for mercy and pray that God will hear his plea. And so we have his condition. He's in the depths. We hear his cry, a plea for mercy. And then we find his concern when we get to verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And so he's moved now, right, from this image of the sea to the image of the courtroom. And he he sees his sin that engulfs him, and he sees it in the context of the holiness of God. That's his concern. God is holy. God is just, and he must punish sin. God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel, wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. That's not a description we often hear. It's not one that people quote on Twitter or have hang up in their house in pictures, our God is a jealous and avenging God. He is wrathful, and He will uh, punish 
iniquity. That's the God that we all will face on the day of judgment. See, if you enter that courtroom and go to trial without an advocate, you will be crushed by this God. His wrath is poured out like fire. He will dash to the pieces. And so, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? And the answer is no one can stand without an advocate. But we know we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. And so the psalmist is concerned that the holy, just God were to mark with equity. He could not stand. But, he says, that glorious word we mentioned last week, but, but with God there is forgiveness. And so we've moved from the psalmist's condition. We've heard his cry. We we discover his concern, his sinfulness, and now we come to the consolation. Remember, it's a psalm of ascent. It was a psalm sung as the Jewish pilgrims made their way to Jerusalem for the festivals. And in particular, this psalm was probably sung on the Day of Atonement. And this psalm is literally a, a psalm of ascent. It starts in those lowest depths of despair, He's in the abyss of depression, but he progresses steadily upward, as we've just seen. He's kind of climbing out of the deep waters. He cried out to God first, and his second step upward was to acknowledge that he was indeed a sinner before a holy God in his lost condition. He was, his third step would have been acknowledging that God is righteous and holy and just, and then he would acknowledge this, that he is also forgiving. And so the, the, the psalmist's consolation in the courtroom is that God is a forgiving God, that God would forgive his sins. Hebrews tells us, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. In Christ, God, the righteous judge, has blotted out our sin. He has separated us from our sin. That's what the Day of Atonement is about. Uh, Remember, there were two goats. One goat was slain as a substitute for the people. Without the shedding of blood, there is no atonement. There's no forgiveness. And the other goat, the the priest would put his hands over the goat and and confessed uh, the sins of the people, and that goat was let loose, never to be seen again. And, 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 And what God is saying in that moment is, you will hear no more about those sins you have confessed today. That's a beautiful thing. Think of the confession we had earlier. It's true for us. We confess those sins. You will hear no more about those sins you have confessed. And see, all of that in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. God has taken the sin of all those whom he has chosen and and placed it on Christ and then clothed those he has chosen with Christ's righteousness. And so the advocate, Jesus Christ, stands with a guilty sinner before the righteous judge. And if that's the case, you will be acquitted. Paul tells us there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's what the psalmist is teaching. Of course, of course, the psalmist didn't fully understand how God would forgive sin. 
He, 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 he didn't live this side of the cross. He, he believed in God. He believed in the word. He believed in the promises, um, but he didn't have the full revelation. We have the full revelation, and so we know that God forgives sin through Jesus Christ. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, says Colossians 1.14, and that redemption That redemption we have in Christ is the same redemption the psalmist speaks about in verse 7 and verse 8. If you see there, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful or full redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And so you see, the, the psalmist ascends from the pit of despair to this high ground of steadfast hope. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope, says verse 5. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. And so I don't know if you picked up the contrasts that are here. He's in the depths, and then he's in the heights. He's condemned, then he's redeemed. He's guilty, and now he's forgiven. He's crying out, and he's waiting As that verse says, from spiritual despair, he goes to spiritual hope. And it's those last two that I want to focus on this week. This is really one sermon split in two, so one wouldn't be really long. And so this week, we're going to focus on waiting and hope. We looked at them in his depths, as I just reviewed. We looked at the redemption. We've looked at the forgiveness. Now, waiting and hope. Now, last week I mentioned that God's forgiveness leads to what? Godly living. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared, says verse 4. We we talked about how spiritual forgiveness, forgiveness doesn't lead to spiritual laziness. It it leads to a spiritual liveliness. And and this is seen in the psalmist waiting and in the psalmist hoping. Let's look at waiting. Look at verse 5. My soul waits for the Lord, my soul waits. Verse 6, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. This is the third image of the psalm. The first two we've talked about. He's in the depths, and then we talk about the courtroom. Uh, So you had the image of the sea, the image of the courtroom, and now we're at the city walls. We're within the city walls. And the picture he's painting here is of a soldier, a night guard, waiting and watching resolutely and patiently. It's dark, and he's gazing through the darkness to see if there's any danger approaching. But if you ask any soldier what they long for the most is not the sight of danger, it's the sight of the sun, it's the sight of the morning. They long for the morning. And nothing the watchman can do can bring the morning any sooner. It cannot make the sun go up. But when the day dawns, the guard rejoices that another day went by and the city was kept safe. That's the image. That's the intensity of waiting that the psalmist is describing. And he repeats it twice. And this is uh, poetic. He's repeating it twice to make an impression. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. 
And so it begs the question, what is he intently waiting for? Now, some have said that he is waiting for deliverance from trouble. But as we talked about last week, that's not the focus. The focus is on sin, not outward trouble in the sense of war or something like that. And so he's not waiting for deliverance from trouble. Maybe it's the forgiveness. That's the context. Verse 3 and 4 talks about forgiveness. But he's already received his forgiveness. He's found his forgiveness. He's not waiting for that. So what is he waiting for? And the answer is God. He's waiting for God. He he doesn't simply want deliverance. He doesn't simply want forgiveness. He doesn't simply want the gifts. He wants God himself. He's been delivered from God. He's been forgiven from God. Now he wants fellowship with God. He's longing for it. He wants to commune with God. He wants the intimacy with God that follows upon our forgiveness. And, and, And the psalmist explains it. I'm longing for it. I'm waiting for it. He's waiting in faith. Now, we've lost the art of pausing and waiting for the Lord. We are an impatient people, and I uh, said in first service, I'll say it again, I have a mirror in front of me right now. Uh, I'm, I'm an impatient person. We want instant gratification or we move on to the next thing. You know, several years ago, I I made a decision. I have to start getting up early, early in the morning, 4.35, 5.30, any time in there, in order to get up and, and spend time with the Lord and wait upon the Lord. But I'm impatient. I was able to pull off getting up early, and then I sit down and I open up the Scripture and I start reading and it mentions something and it makes me think of something else, and then something else comes to my mind, and then before I know it, I'm buying something on Amazon. <laughs> not quite sure how the two correlate, but that's, that's what happens. I, 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 I'm impatient. And, 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 what, and what the psalmist is saying is that we, we need to wait upon the Lord. We want instant answer to our prayers, or what we do is we move on to the next request. But if, if we're to know the blessing of God, if we're to know the comfort of God, we must learn to wait. You know, the Scripture is full of commands for us to wait upon the Lord. I'll give you some of the Psalms, and then I'll close with a more popular one. Psalm 27, 4, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 33, 20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Psalm 37, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Psalm 37, verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. And then the popular one, Isaiah 40, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up like wings with eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. We need to wait. Scripture is clear. It repeats it for a reason. We need to wait upon the Lord. Now, the meaning of this, one, one writer points out, it helps us to understand it better, there's three meanings of this word wait. The first meaning carries the idea of silence. Uh, our, our souls are too noisy. You know, we have a moment in the service where we purposely spend it confessing, but in silence. And, and for a lot of people, that may be, besides going to bed at night, and even then, I mean, I have a noise machine on, we... we, we we don't spend any time in silence. That may be the longest pause you take throughout 
your day seven days a week, just spending time in silence. The, the, the psalmist here lifted up his prayer before the Lord, and, and, and he received his forgiveness, and now he kind of quiets himself before God. That's the first meaning. The second meaning we kind of hinted at, it means to watch and to observe, take notice. This means that all our spiritual senses are alive and alert and expectant. And so that's the second meaning. Proverbs 8.34 says, ties both of these together. It says, blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. That's similar to what the psalmist, when he speaks of the watchman waiting for the morning. Imagine you're a servant, and, and, and you're waiting at a door, or you're waiting at the gate, and you don't know the moment that your master is going to return and open the door and, and require of you his service, or maybe even to give you a gift. And so what the, what the servant does is he listens, he watches, he waits. That's the idea. The third meaning of the word carries the idea of expectation of hope. For God alone, my soul waits in silence, for my hope is from him, Psalm 62, 1 and 5. To wait upon God means to expect something from him in godly hope. There's an expectation in waiting on God. So waiting upon the Lord is to be intent on God with this great desire to, to, to behold him, to regard him, to depend upon him, to, to silently wait on him with, with this great boundless expectation for whatever he wants to give to us spiritually. And to do this, it requires patience. It requires submission. It requires trust. It requires faith. It requires you to put your hope in God alone. And see, that leads us to the uh, verses 5, 6, and 7. This is the second key word. We have wait, now we have hope. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. So while we're waiting, is the image while we're listening, while we're silent, God speaks. And this, we're not talking about a voice where, you know, if people are just sitting there waiting. And when I first got saved, I, I, I heard charismatic preachers talk about this, and I, I worked a night shift at the park, and so I just tried to get, wait for God to speak to me. He never actually did until he did once. I picked up the Bible, opened it, and read it. See, that's where he speaks to us. God speaks to us through his word, in his Word, we hope. And see, God speaks to us his promises in his word. And notice what the psalmist says. In his word, I hope. Then what's he ask Israel to do? Hope in the Lord. They're one and the same. I said that the other week. To put your hope in God's word is to put your hope in the Lord. To put, uh, when, when, when the word speaks, God speaks. When the word makes a promise, God is making a promise. When the word threatens judgment, God is threatening judgment. When the word is read, when the word is preached, it's as if Christ himself are standing before you reading, proclaiming the word. Why? Because it's his word. 
And so it's a word that must be known. We, we live in an information age. Hey, you know, we have everything, you talk about impatience, we have everything at our fingertips. You know, five in the morning, I can order something and it'll be there, but like 10 in the afternoon, uh, 10 in the, in the morning. You know, we, we, we just want everything quick. You know, we click a mouse and we can know everything and anything on any subject. Most of it is frivolous. Most of it is a waste of time. Uh, but that's not true with the Word of God. See, to, to, to have that information, to have uh, that understanding is life-changing. It's life-transforming. And so if we're going to have any confidence in this sinful world, just turn on the news and look at any number of stories, many of that relate to the people of Israel. Where are they going to place their hope? They need to place their hope in Christ. Here he's talking about sin. Right now they're facing the reality of physical harm. But, but we're talking about sin, and where can they put their hope? It's got to be in the Word. It has to be in the Word. If you're going to have any confidence in this world, it, you're going to have to know God. If we're going to be able to stand when, when Satan seeks to knock us down, reminding us of our sin, then we must know the Word of promise. As usual, Spurgeon says it well, the attribute of mercy and the fact of redemption are two most sufficient reasons for hoping in God. God is merciful, and He will redeem us. Thus, we hope in His promises. Let me again, like I did a few weeks ago, speak to you about the Word of God. As I said, in every era of the Christian church, the Word of God is always under attack. It's always under attack. In every era, outside the church, yes. I mean, I was reading a, a debate over some of this Israel stuff, and people using Scripture, and the utter cluelessness of, I'm, I'm talking about unbelievers, right? Utter cluelessness of what the Word talks about. Just completely foreign to them. I, I'm not blaming them. I'm not even judging them. They, they don't believe it, so they don't follow it. And, and they mock it. But even within the church, more importantly, it's not known that well, and, and it's attacked in our academic circles, often at times, it's always attacked. But the scripture tells us, and the psalmist here says, Look, you've got to put your hope in God's word. We have 66 books of the Bible, it's all God's truth. Some people have called it God's love letter to the church. I don't think that's a bad way of saying it. So let's consider it that way. Imagine if God gave us this love letter and half of the information was just false or wrong or a lie. It's not too loving, is it? And, and, and so here's the reality. If there's one part of this book, one part that is not true, that we can't have confidence in, that it is true, what, why should we have confidence in any of God's promises? I, I mean, if the story of Jonah is just fabricated and made up, well, Jesus doesn't look at it that way. And so, if, it, if the creation story is just a myth that we stole from another civilization, if, if Adam didn't really exist, if errors are found on every page, why believe the Bible when it says Jesus rose again for our justification? Why? If they can make mistakes and lie about other things, why not that? 
Why should the psalmist have any confidence at all that in God there is forgiveness? Is it just, I'm just hoping it is true? No. Why should we believe the Apostle Paul when he says there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? He could have made a mistake. He may have meant for most of you. He didn't know you guys yet. If he would have known you guys, he would have never made that statement. I mean, he's just making it up, right? We could not trust God at all if that was the case. And so let the skeptics be damned if they want to keep denying the Scripture. This is God's holy word. And the psalmist says in Psalm 19, it is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It's sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb, Psalm 19. If the Scripture were just a bunch of mistakes and ideas of men and fairy tales, it's not really worth more than gold. So at the very least, they believed it was the Word of God, and that's where we stand. This is the Word of God. And so let's stand with the psalmist, let's put our hope in God's Word, and let's put our hope in the Lord. Now I'm going to close with a simple application. How do we wait and hope in the Lord? How do we do that? And it's simple. We need to quiet our hearts before our majestic Lord. We need to spend that time that I, that I have gotten up early for the past year and a half, faithfully, mind you, uh, to spend time with the Lord, and now i got to actually spend time with the Lord. I'm up. Spend more time with the Lord. Spend time with our Heavenly Father in prayer. Spend time meditating on His Word. It's like the watchman who longs for the morning sun. We, we must long for God to reveal Himself in His will, in His Word to our souls. We, we need to diligently mine the, the, the treasures of God's holy Word, and, and we need to mine them in order to find in them the true revelation of who God is, and we need to mine them in order to find the true revelation of God's Son and God's salvation and God's promises and His commands and His will for our lives. We need to mind it to find a true revelation of what God has in store for us for the future and his kingdom. And so we must search diligently his word, mine its promises, and what? Put our hope in him. That's how we obey the psalm. That's how you wait upon the Lord. You set aside time. Sunday is a good time. Along, along in the week, you set aside time and say, Lord, I need you to speak to me in your word. And you wait on the Lord. You bring your prayer request and you wait on the Lord. You trust in him. You put your hope in him. Humbly acknowledging your desperate need for him and your need for him to speak to you through his word. See, we take up the scriptures and quietly meditate upon them that they, they'll reveal their glorious riches. See, we want a, a quick fix faith. Uh, you want me to say something kind of, you know, profound real quick, and you can walk out and say, that man, that changed me. And, 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 and it just doesn't work that way. Oh, the Spirit could come upon you, and, and one little word could turn you inside out and change you. But, but it's usually we wait on it and we meditate upon it. Why use those terms if it wasn't necessary? And so through the power of the Spirit, at work in our hearts, we need to experience uh, something of the sweet communion that can be ours in Christ if we would wait 
on him, if we lift our hearts up to him in prayer and meditate upon his word. We do that in groups. We do that here. We do it in your studies. You do it on your your women's studies, the men's studies, but do it on your own. See, if you were doing that every week, if I'm doing that every week, it makes this all the more glorious to God because our hearts are prepared to spend time in his word. That's what he, the psalmist, longed for. That's what he waited for. And he he waited for it not only for himself, but for the whole covenant community. Look at verse 7 and 8. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Paul tells us we're the Israel of God. This is a promise to us. What he experienced, the psalmist saying, look, it's available to all true saints of the Lord. And if it was available to them, how much more is it available to us this side of the resurrection? Now that we have the full revelation. Don't settle for simply an academic knowledge of the scripture. That's a challenge to any pastor or preacher or seminarian that we can quote and debate But what we're looking for is an experiential knowledge, not not like experiential in the sense that a lot of people talk about it. Well, I just felt like God said that to me. No, but in the sense that as I read the scripture, I I know that I'm meeting with God by his spirit. And so may we as a church put our hope in the word. Let's pray. Father, we have your word. As believers, we have your spirit, and Father, we pray that you would reveal to us the the treasure of Scripture, that we would come to know you and commune with you all the more. In Christ's name, amen.